Hey everybody, my name is Aubrey and you're listening to the Faithful Millennial Podcast where I talk about Jesus, Bible prophecy, and world news in hopes to reconnect the millennials and Gen Z generation back to Jesus Christ. Thank you for being here. Hey everybody, it is episode 5 of the Faithful Millennial Podcast, and I am coming to you right now completely unscripted. I usually have a whole script written out, typed out of what I'm going to say, some bullet points. I usually try to keep it very organized because my thoughts in general are usually not organized, Um, but I just wanted to start this episode by talking about what happened this morning at 6.30 a.m. in Israel. A lot of people probably already know, um, it's already all over the news, that Israel was attacked this morning by Hamas. Now, Hamas and Israel have been, you know, butting heads for decades now. Um, They've been arguing over the West Bank, you know, who owns the territory. Um, Basically, the terrorists that live in Hamas are infiltrating Israel as we speak. They've killed at least 74 people. They've injured over 400 people. They've been firing rockets at Israel. They've been abducting citizens, doing God knows what with them. They have been, um, they're literally in military vehicles. I've heard that they've stolen some of Israelis' military fleet. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I just saw a video on TikTok of that particular situation. So I don't know if that's from today or if that's maybe from the past. Um, But essentially, these Hamas terrorists are opening fire on innocent citizens in Israel. And Israel has officially declared war for the first time since 1973. So this is a very big deal. And I think that this lines up perfectly with what the Bible says is going to happen at the end of days. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And you know, this is one of the things that leads up to the second coming of Christ, which is great timing for this podcast, because that's obviously the topic that we're going to be talking about. But if you can please pray for Israel, pray for the innocent lives that have been um, taken today, pray for the people in Israel, especially on the southern border near the Gaza um, area, pray for them to be safe and protected and that just the blood of Christ would cover them. Pray for the Israeli soldiers that are dealing with this, that are pushing back. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, he officially declared war this morning. Uh, He feels confident that obviously Israel is going to win, but this comes just a a week and a half after the UN meeting in New York, where Palestine, um, you know, they were talking about how Israel needs to share Jerusalem and they want to, you know, obviously get some land back from Israel. Israel is obviously not budging because Israel... Um, knows Jerusalem is their capital and not the capital of Palestine. So this has just been an ongoing battle between these two nations. Um, But just wanted to come on here and give a quick update about what's going on in Israel. So if you guys could please pray for them, please keep them in your thoughts and prayers because they need it. So touching on the subject of today's episode, it's going to be the part two in the series, The Second Coming of Christ. So in the last episode, we talked about the next event that's going to happen on the timeline, which is the rapture. Um, The rapture is an event that's referred to as 
essentially the great disappearance. So millions of Christians would, will disappear from the earth all in a sudden instant. According to the Apostle Paul, this will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Um, today's episode, we're going to talk specifically about the first three and a half years of the seven-year Great Tribulation that's going to happen right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, and which also takes place after the rapture of the church. I did want to get some questions answered, though, because I got quite a few questions um, about the rapture, and people just have really, really valid questions that um, I did want to address. So the first one was, can you explain why the second coming of Christ and the rapture are two separate events? I've always thought that they were the same thing. So this is a common question in regards to this subject, and probably for good reason. So the events are similar, but there are important details that you need to understand in order to realize that they are two separate events. The first is this. When Jesus tells his disciples that he's coming at an hour that no man knows, that's the first clue that these are two separate events. So why is that? Well, we know from the book of Daniel and from the book of Revelation that the Great Tribulation will be exactly seven years. So God is literal. He means, he means when he says seven years, it's seven years. Jesus Christ returns at the end of the seven years to eradicate evil, to lock up Satan for a thousand years, and to reign from Jerusalem for that time period, for his 1,000 year, it's called the millennial reign. The rapture, however, that's an event where Jesus doesn't touch the ground. He doesn't leave heaven. He simply calls us up to be where he is. So if you remember in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I, re I will receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. So where is Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. So he's going to call us up to him. Whereas the second coming of Christ, this takes place at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So Jesus physically returns back to earth. It says in the book of Revelation, with the armies of heaven. So if the rapture and the second coming are the same thing, that would mean that Jesus would call us up to heaven to him just to come right back down to fight at the battle of Armageddon. So that just doesn't make sense. It's like a yo-yo effect. Um, so scripture tells us that the rapture and the second coming are two separate events that take place at the end of the world. Another question I got was, is this the first time anyone has been raptured before? Is there any other scripture reference to the rapture in the Old Testament? And that's a great question, too, because... Um, the answer is yes. There are a few key figures in the Bible, Old Testament specifically, who have been harpazoed or raptured. Um, the first one being in the book of Genesis. You read in Genesis chapter 5, I think it was verse 21 through 24. Um, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So the same word in Hebrew for rapture is the same word that means God took him, to be snatched away, to be caught away. Another key figure was the prophet Elijah. So in 2 Kings chapter 2, you will read about um, how the prophets Elijah and Elisha were walking together and they were, you know, just talking to each other. And it says in verse 11, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses, uh, horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel and Elisha saw him no more. So now I know this person asked about the Old Testament, but there is actually another person aside from Jesus in the New Testament who was raptured. So if you're familiar with um, the book of Acts, you'll read that the disciple Philip, the first missionary and evangelist, he was raptured. So he wasn't 
snatched up to heaven raptured, but he was snatched away to another city by supernatural means. So it says that he was baptizing a eunuch and the eunuch man went under the water. And when he came out, it says that in Acts chapter eight, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So it's just funny to me that Philip is like, okay, that was fun. Let's just keep on preaching. You know, it doesn't even really say or address anything that he was just, you know, supernaturally transfigured into another city. Um, It just says that he just kept traveling and preaching. So pretty amazing. So supernaturally, I know, I completely understand that the concept of the rapture seems like a hard one to get behind. Um, Trust me, I understand it sounds wild. Millions of people vanishing from the earth simultaneously while, you know, people are going to witness this happen. Um, I get that. Like, here's the thing, though. If you're a Christian, then you also believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So how much more wild is it that God became man and died and then came back to life? Like, we believe some pretty incredible things as Christians. So um, we also believe that God spoke the universe into existence. So the rapture by far is It's one of the most amazing events in the Bible, but comparably speaking, it isn't even the most incredible thing that God's done. Like the concept of the rapture shouldn't be a hard one for us as Christians to get behind, especially when you believe all these other supernatural things that God has done. Um, My advice is to, you just have to read the Bible. You have to read the New Testament. You have to read the Old Testament. Um, It's in the Bible. It's not like it's a mystery anymore. It was revealed to the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul revealed it to the church. And um, yeah, it's in the Bible. So you just have to read it. Um, But let's dive into part two now of the second coming. So on this episode, we're going to discuss, like I said, the first three and a half years of the seven year Great Tribulation. So specifically, want to talk about what happens after the rapture takes place. So we know from the book of Daniel that there's a figure that will rise on the scene, seemingly out of nowhere. Um, The book of Revelation refers to him as the rider on the white horse. So he comes with a bow, but no arrows. So he comes to conquer. Um, He shows up on the scene as a peacemaker who preaches peace and prosperity. We also know that he will strengthen a covenant with many. And this is the thing that begins the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist is going to sign a peace treaty. Most Bible scholars believe that this will be a peace agreement Um, likely between Israel and their hostile neighbors, which, um, wow, crazy timing of what happened literally this morning with Hamas attacking Israel. What an amazing time for a figure such as, you know, the Antichrist, this great peacemaker to come on the scene and, um, you know, have all of the the solutions to the problems of everything going on with Israel right now. So very interesting timing of all this happening. But um, so anyway, most most scholars believe this will be a peace agreement between Israel and the hostile neighbors. Um, it's also believed that this peace treaty will include the rebuilding of the third temple. So the reason why we believe this is because right now there is no temple. But it says in the Bible during the seven year tribulation, there will be a third temple because they're going to have animal sacrifice during the first three and a half years. The Jewish people will be able to um, practice animal sacrifice. It says in the middle of the tribulation that this peacemaker, the Antichrist, he's revealed now as the Antichrist who sits in the third temple of God and claims himself to be God. So what exactly is Antichrist? The Apostle John writes that anyone or anything that believes that Jesus is not the Son of God 
or denies that Jesus is the Son of God. That is the spirit of Antichrist. So whoever denies the Father and the Son is Antichrist. But we know um, from Scripture, this Antichrist will be a person. He's a more evil version of Hitler. And I've been asked this question in the past, is the Antichrist going to be a woman? No, definitely not. It's very clear in Scripture that the Antichrist is a man. So no, it is not Taylor Swift. The book of Daniel tells us that this figure will rise out of a revived Roman Empire, which is one thing that makes me believe that the Antichrist is not going to be a Jew. He will most likely be a Gentile based on that information. Um, Ironically, Rome is the capital of the Catholic Church. So will Antichrist come from a Catholic Roman background? Will he be from Greece? Um, I kind of have some speculation of who this person could be. Of course, you know, as the church, we won't know who the Antichrist is because in 2 Thessalonians, it says that the Holy Spirit will be removed from the earth and then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. So, um, but I do personally believe that the Antichrist is alive right now. Now, if he's alive right now, we know he hasn't been possessed by Satan yet. So there are three figures written about in the book of Revelation that pertain to Satan. So the first is, of course, Satan. Um, The second is Antichrist. And then we have the false prophet. Now, you notice throughout scripture, Satan doesn't like to do anything originally. He likes to copy God and do the opposite of what God does. So this is the unholy trinity, Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. That's Satan's spin on the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because we know that Satan doesn't do anything of his own origin. He always copies. He does the opposite. So, during the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, Antichrist will come on the scene as a peacemaker. He will broker a deal. He'll strengthen a covenant with Israel. And this is what begins the seven-year tribulation. So, the rapture does not begin the seven-year tribulation. I want to make that very clear. The rapture could take place at any moment. The seven-year tribulation won't take place until this covenant is signed. So we know that this uh, peace covenant, it will most likely include the rebuilding of the third temple in Jerusalem. Now, uh, where we read this is in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. It says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, referring to the middle of the tribulation, um, he will bring an end to sacrifice and suffering. Uh, Sorry into sacrifice and offering. On the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out onto, um, is poured out on the desolate. So what this verse is referring to is that the Jews will be able to do animal sacrifice again to atone for sins during the start of the seven-year tribulation. Um, Once the temple's been completed, which we know from the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, It will only take them about 16 to 18 months to build a temple. Um, So if I had to guess, the start of the tribulation happens. The Antichrist signs the peace treaty. um, Israel immediately begins building the temple. Now, whether or not the dome on the rock is moved or maybe they'll build the temple at a different location, I am not too sure about that. The Bible does not specify. Um, But there will be a third temple in the beginning. There will be animal sacrifice in the first three and a half years. Um, And then it also says um, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is referring to the same moment, um, he tells John, the apostle, that Antichrist will stop the sacrifice and claim himself to be God. And he will sit in the temple of God and force the whole world to worship him as God. 
So that's what that verse in Daniel chapter nine is referring to um, of what will happen during the first three and a half years. Specifically, this moment will take place in the middle of the tribulation. So, um, but I do want to make this point clear, just because the Jews and Israel are going to have peace for the first three and a half years with this treaty, that doesn't mean the Gentile world is not going to have peace, is going to have peace. I'm sorry. Um, the Gentile world will be in absolute disarray. And I'm going to talk about the um, the seven seals that Jesus opens um, right after the Apostle John talks to the church in the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about specifically what happens with the Gentile world, because we know that from the peace treaty, the first three and a half years, the Jews will be protected in Israel. So to summarize, the Jews will live in peace during the first half of the tribulation, but not the Gentile nations. So the wars of the Antichrist is going to devastate the world. One fourth of humanity will die in the initial war, according to Revelation chapter six, verse eight. So that's about one and a half billion people in today's terms. So according to Revelation eight and nine, when the war resumes, um, one third of those left alive will die. So that's another one and a half billion. So this half of the tribulation is going to be anything but a time of peace for the Gentile world. It will instead be a time of unimaginable carnage. So for one half of humanity to die in the first three and a half years, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. So you don't want to be alive during this time. You want to accept Christ today, right now, as you're listening to this. So let's backpedal, let's backpedal a little bit. Um, and discuss what happens after the rapture. So the Bible says that in the book of Revelation chapter 6, that Jesus will open the seven seals of judgment on earth. This will also kick off the great tribulation. So God's wrath is poured out on earth from the very beginning. Jesus is the one opening the seals. So we know that Jesus is God. Therefore, the tribulation period is kicked off with God's wrath. A lot of people like to say that the first three and a half years of the tribulation is man's wrath. Well, that is not the case because Jesus is the one opening the seals. So the first seal is the white horse. So John writes in Revelation chapter six, verse two, and I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So we know that from scripture, the white horse here is representing the Antichrist who is revealed immediately after the rapture. So after the Antichrist is revealed, then the red horse is released. The red horse is the one that's given power to take peace from the earth so that people on earth would kill one another. I believe that this is extremely relevant because once the rapture takes place, it's going to be chaos. Like I stated in the last episode, people are going to be looting, murdering, breaking into homes, um, crime on an unimaginable level. So that's what Revelation also supports here with the red horse. And then comes the black horse. So the black horse represents inflation. If you think inflation is bad now, just wait until the first three and a half years of the tribulation. It says that in Revelation chapter six, verse six, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see that you do not hurt the wine, the oil and the wine. So what it says here is that a loaf of bread will basically cost you a day's wage. That's how bad inflation is going to be during the first three years. And then you have the fourth seal, which is the pale horse. So the pale horse represents death and hell, death and hell that follows him. It says power was given to the pale horse over a fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, hunger, and death. So we've got, we've got Antichrist arrives on the scene. We've got chaos and murder. We've got inflation. 
We have famine, pestilence, earthquakes, just as Jesus said there would be. So if you want to take a look into what the first three and a half years are going to look like, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be a horror movie on levels that you can't even imagine. So you can't talk, however, about the first three and a half years without also talking about the 144,000 Jewish virgins. Now, these are Jewish believers in Christ who testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So these are 144,000 Jewish believers from each tribe of Israel. It says that all 12,000 from the 12 tribes, and these are Messianic Jews. So they preach the gospel throughout the earth, and they're Messianic Jews. Now, for whatever reason, these believers weren't raptured. So I don't know if maybe they didn't know Christ before the rapture, and then after the rapture took place, maybe they realized it and began preaching. Um, or maybe if God just intended them to stay on earth for his purpose during this time. But it clearly states that they are on earth. They're preaching the gospel of Christ. And these 144,000, um, they probably save countless souls on earth during the tribulation period. They bring thousands to Christ. It actually says that they're sealed with the seal of God in their foreheads so that none of the plagues that are happening during the tribulation would affect them. It says the purpose of the 144,000 is for non-believers and Jews at the time of the tribulation to hear the gospel. So the whole point of the tribulation period is for God's wrath to be poured out on earth to eradicate evil. But more importantly, it's his last chance for the non-believers to come to Christ. Essentially, it's mankind's last hope and final moment of free will um, to be able to choose God over Satan. So this is important because every person on Judgment Day they won't be able to say, no, I never heard the gospel of Christ. They will say, yes, I heard the gospel and yes, I accepted Christ. Or yes, I heard the gospel and I purposefully reject Christ and I accept my fate in the lake of fire. So God doesn't want to send anyone to the lake of fire. God wants you to be in heaven with him, but he doesn't want robots. He doesn't want people to be with him if they don't want to be there. He's not going to force you to be with him. He wants people who are actively seeking him and genuinely want to be in his presence, which honestly makes sense. So um, I also want to talk about the two witnesses that are Messianic Jews who come down to earth from heaven and they preach the gospel of Christ as well. So these two witnesses, um, it doesn't specifically state in the Bible who they are, but I personally hold the belief that it's probably Moses and the prophet Elijah. It says in the book of Revelation, um, chapter 11, verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses that they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks that stand before God of the earth. If any man hurts them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have the power to shut heaven, that it rains not on the earth. Um, they have the power to prophesy, and they can turn water to blood. They can smite the earth with plagues as often as they wish. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people of the nation will see their dead bodies three days and a half, 
and they shall not suffer their bodies to be buried. And they that dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets that tormented them that dwell on the earth are dead. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God enters in them and they stand on their feet and great fear will fall on them which saw them. Then it says in verse 12, they hear a great voice from heaven saying, come up here and they ascend into heaven with a cloud. So it's interesting because this is the same voice that John writes in chapter four, who tells the apostle John to come up here. So these two witnesses are also being raptured at this point into heaven in the middle of the um, tribulation period. So they're taken up as well at the midpoint. Um, So the purpose of these two messianic Jews on earth are to also preach the gospel of Christ in Jerusalem. It's that they'll be in the holy city. Um, They'll be preaching and they'll be essentially touching the hearts of other Jewish people that maybe were non-believers and they're stuck in the tribulation period. So their purpose is to, you know, preach the gospel of Christ, to show all these miracles, to prove that God is in charge of the world, um, the tribulation period, you know, the purpose of it. So these are um, 144,000 Jewish messianic virgins and the two witnesses are in the earth during the tribulation period to preach the gospel of Christ. So I just said a lot. So let's recap. The rapture of the church takes place at any moment. Could happen anytime. The seven-year tribulation starts by the Antichrist signing the peace treaty, the covenant with many, uh, most likely with Israel, a peace treaty with Israel and their hostile neighbors. Um, A third temple will be built during this time. Animal sacrifice will take place in Jerusalem. The 144,000 virgin messianic Jews will be sealed. They will begin preaching the gospel. There will be war, famine, and pestilence on earth that affect the Gentile nations. Um, A third of the earth will die during this time. Uh, The two witnesses will preach during this time. They will be killed by the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation. They will die. Their bodies will sit in... um, Jerusalem, the holy city, for three and a half days, and then God will re will resurrect them, bring them back to life, and they will be ascended into heaven. And um, you know, this also includes the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we talked about, the seals that Jesus opens in the beginning. Um, so that is what we have recapped on so far. So the reason I believe that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah is because it says that they have the power to put plagues on the earth. And what is Moses famous for? Well, he put the plagues of Pharaoh in Egypt in the book of Exodus. So these are the very similar plagues that were written in the book of Revelation. Um, You also read in Matthew chapter 17 that Jesus actually speaks to Moses and Elijah before his crucifixion. It says, uh, Matthew chapter 17, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, up on the high mountain by themselves. While they watched, Jesus' appearance was changed. His face became bright like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Then Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus. So um, that's just my personal opinion. Again, the two witnesses can be whoever God wants them to be. I personally think that they could be Moses and Elijah. Um, So The first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation is going to be absolutely awful. The Antichrist is going to try and mitigate these things by coming as a peacemaker um, who has all the right answers. You know, humanity is going to be worshiping him. 
Um, he's going to give the Jews peace. He's going to let them rebuild their temple. He's going to be, you know, someone that uh, everyone on earth, except for, of course, people who are born again believers during this time, um, they're going to worship and think of him as this great leader, uh, military leader. Now, I do want to address something that I've been asked before, and that is, will people be saved during the tribulation? Because it says the Holy Spirit will be gone during this time, right? So how can people be saved if the Holy Spirit is, you know, taken up? Well, I can tell you confidently that, yes, people will be saved. Um, that's actually the whole point of this. The whole purpose of the 144,000 and the two witnesses is to get that final remnant of God's people on earth, even if they didn't accept Christ before the rapture. Uh, if they accept Christ during the seven-year tribulation and they don't take the mark of the beast, which we're going to get into in the next part, um, anyone who accepts Christ during this time and doesn't take the mark is a born-again believer. They're saved. So it does say that during this period, Christians will be martyred. So if you are a born-again believer, if you do become a Christian during this time, you will most likely be martyred. You will most likely be killed for your faith. Um, it says in the book of Revelation that there are saints in heaven who ask God in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge the earth and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And then God, God gives these saints white robes, and he basically tells them, um, that they need to rest for a little while until their fellow servants and brethren should be killed as they were killed. So I believe these saints in the white robes are probably early century Christians that were killed by the Roman Empire, um, probably people that were persecuted in the Ro early Roman church age, um, that, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, they didn't want the Bible to be translated. So anyone who would defy the Catholic Church and the Roman Empire, um, early Christians, of course, first, second, third, fourth century Christians, um, you know, they would throw them in a den with lions. The crowds would watch and cheer as lions devoured Christians. They crucified Christians. They would stab them. They beheaded them. Um, so I believe that's who these saints are. But of course, that's just my speculation based on scripture. Um, now, I understand that this is a little hard to follow in the book of Revelation. It can be quite confusing to someone who's never read it before or doesn't understand the imagery um, but you do have to look at it from this perspective. When you watch a movie and the movie like fast forwards and rewinds and like, you know, it'll go back in time or it'll be like, oh, five years later or two years later. Um, you know, that's kind of how the book of Revelation is written in terms of John's perspective. So at first you see that John is um, given kind of a, a broad overview of what's going to happen during the seven years. And then in the middle and latter chapters, you uh, you can kind of read how these things are broken down into further detail. So it's almost like you're viewing the entire seven-year tribulation on fast forward in chapters six through nine. And then after chapter nine, you read the book from a point of view of what's going to happen in terms of specificity during those years, if that makes sense. So um, there is a ton of symbolism. There's imagery in the book of Revelation that you almost have to um, read the Old Testament to understand. You have to understand the book of Daniel. Um, I would recommend reading the book of Daniel in the Old Testament first before you read Revelation because those two books are heavily correlated. Um, they talk about the same events. So I would highly recommend if you haven't read Revelation yet, read the book of Daniel first because imagery in the book of Daniel is going to be very similar to the imagery in the book of Revelation. Um, Daniel is actually called the Old Testament version of Revelation. So recapping, the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, you're going to have the rapture will take place beforehand. 
the Antichrist will come to power through peace and deception, um, as well as military power. The peace treaty will be signed with Israel. Murder and crime will increase at an exponential rate. Um, inflation will be through the roof. There will be famine, pestilence, earthquakes. Um, at some point during the first half, the third temple will be rebuilt. And then finally, we're going to have the Antichrist sit in the temple and claim himself to be God. So once that happens, that moment will signify the middle of the seven-year tribulation, which is three and a half years after the peace treaty has been signed. So this is the moment where Antichrist breaks the treaty. He sits in the temple of God and he claims himself to be God and he forces the whole world to worship him as God. Jesus tells his disciples that at this point, when Antichrist sits in the temple of God and defiles it and blasphemes God, that he will direct his attention and his anger away from the Gentile world and towards the Jewish people for persecution. So he's going to break his treaty and he's going to persecute the Jews who are living in Israel and all over the world. Um, it's Jesus actually says that during this time to the Jews that live in Israel, don't even turn around to get your clothes. He says, as soon as you see the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, sit in the temple of God and claim himself to be God. He says, flee to the mountains and run. Because this is also a time where born again Christians who were saved during the rapture, they're going to have, um, most likely they will already be in hiding at this point. Persecution of Christianity and Judaism will be at an all time high. So Satan's after two things during this time. He's going to go after Christians and he's going to go after Jews because those are the two things that God loves the most. So a popular misconception about the tribulation is that the church will go through it and suffer at the hands of Antichrist. I just want to address this um, concept because it's based on verses like Revelation 13 verse 7, which says the Antichrist will make war with the saints. But the saints here are referred to those who are saved during the tribulation period, people that, are, that become born again during the seven years. So there's going to be a great harvest of souls during the tribulation. Some will be saved in response to the rapture. You know, they're going to be like, wait a minute, this wasn't aliens. This was those, those Christians that have been talking about this moment, the rapture, and then they're going to come to Christ. Others are going to respond to the preaching of the two witnesses in Jerusalem and the 144,000 in Revelation 11. Um, the response of others will be stimulated by the tribulation judgments, which will motivate a lot of people to repent. Um, others will respond to this angel that will be sent by God near the end of the tribulation to proclaim the gospel to every living creature. Um, many will be saved, but most of them will be martyred for their faith. Uh, so there's no purpose for the church during the tribulation. This is a time of God's judgment on the unbelieving Gentiles and the Jews who have rejected God's grace, love, and mercy expressed in Jesus. So some argue that the church must go through tribulation to be purged or cleansed, but the, tr the true church has already been purified by the blood of Jesus. Um, the symbolic imagery of the New Testament focuses on the church as being the bride of Christ so is the bridegroom, is he going to beat up his bride for seven years before he comes for her? Definitely not. I hope not. Um, the Bible says that Jesus is coming to deliver his bride from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Also in Revelation 19, verse 8, um, Jesus is returning with his church at the end of the tribulation, indicating that the redeemed will already have been taken out of this world before the tribulation begins. So Revelation 
focuses on the church in the first three chapters. Beginning with chapter 4, there is no more mention of the church during the entire period of the tribulation. So the church is not referred to again in the book of Revelation until chapter 22, verse 16. So I say all this just to say, um, you don't have to go through this period of wrath. You can accept Jesus Christ today, right now. And God has been so merciful unto us that we still have time to repent and accept Christ. So you don't have to go through this tribulation period. The rapture is a real event. The prophecies that are spoken in, in Christ Jesus, those are literal prophecies, which means that this is a literal thing that will happen. These are not symbolic. These are literal things that are going to happen. So the rapture is a real event. It's our blessed hope as believers that we look for Christ every single day. So we're supposed to be occupying and living our lives, but we need to be looking to the sky for Christ every single day. The gospel says that you have to come to him with childlike faith. And that means to love something unconditionally without having to understand it at all. All you have to do is believe. So I know it's going to be... Um, a lot of questions with this episode. We covered a ton of information, um, which I'm glad about. I like covering this information and I like talking about it and I like answering questions, the questions that I can't answer at least. Um, so let me guy, let me know what you guys think about this episode. If you have any questions in particular, you know where to reach me. Um, Instagram is the easiest and quickest way. And um, that's part two of this mini series, The Second Coming of Christ. Behold a white horse. And uh, next episode, we're going to talk about the last half of the three and a half years. So next episode is going to be juicy. We're going to talk about the mark of the beast. We're going to talk about um, the angels that fly around earth that proclaim the gospel and hopefully save millions. We're going to talk about what the second coming of Christ is going to look like, the battle of Armageddon, the great battle. Um, we're going to talk about how Saint, Saint Michael, the archangel, how he throws Satan into the lake of fire. Um, or I'm sorry, he bounds Satan for a thousand years and the false prophet and the Antichrist go in the lake of fire. So we're going to talk about all of that. It's going to be a really awesome episode. So um, see you guys next time. Thank you so much for being here. And remember, please pray for Israel. They are struggling right now. Um, so many horrible things are happening to our Israeli brothers and sisters. So please pray for them. Um, just pray for God's protection over them and that they will prevail from this time. But thanks, guys. Have a great week. Bye.